And as we get started, if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be. We're continuing our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And as we do that, I just wanted to talk a little bit probably about my favorite subject, me. Um, So you guys are the same. Don't even laugh like you don't think. Not that you talk about me, but you talk about yourselves, right? No, but... uh, you know, I, I'm pretty easy to please. Uh, there's, a, there's a running joke in my family that my mom makes, and she's going to be listening to this later, so she'll get a good chuckle out of this. But the running joke is that uh, I'm pretty easy to please when I go out to eat, because every time I go out to eat, I want to get the same thing, just variations on the same theme. And that theme is hamburgers, because why not, Right? There's a story in my family that when I was a kid, we went to a Chinese restaurant, and um, I didn't know Chinese food, didn't know that I would love it. I love Chinese food today, but I didn't know at the time, and so I ordered a hamburger, and it was a very decidedly Chinese restaurant hamburger. Um, It did not have cheese on it, nor did it have ketchup on it, but it had some sort of red sauce that wasn't ketchup. And instead of pickles, I don't even know what it was. It was some other vegetable that I had never seen before. But here's the kicker of it all. There was no lettuce. It was bean sprouts for the lettuce. And so I, of course, ate it and probably complained a little bit. But the running joke has been that, you know, I go out to eat and I'm looking for a good hamburger. That was until just a few weeks ago. We went to the Cheesecake Factory Somebody had given us a gift certificate there, and we went as a family to the Cheesecake Factory. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Cheesecake Factory, but they don't have a menu with 50 items on it. They have a menu with 250 items on it. And yes, they've got plenty of hamburgers. And then I walked in the door, I'm thinking, I'm getting a hamburger and some cheesecake, maybe together. I'm okay with that. But then I started reading the menu, and I don't know who wrote the menu, But every single dish made my stomach go, you know, that actually sounds really good. You know, no, actually, I'm hungry for that. So I had walked into this restaurant hungry for one thing, not knowing how hungry I was for something totally different because I did not eat a hamburger. Yes, Mom, if you're listening, I did not eat a hamburger. I got something else. And I'm sorry to talk about food now, but you guys will all get out of here in a few hours, right? And you'll get to have have some food. But the point being is that, you know, sometimes you don't even know what you're hungry for until you see the menu, and the menu almost talks you into it, like it gets you to think about, hey, I want to eat that instead of what I thought I was hungry for. See, the Beatitudes work like that. This Beatitudes are a menu, they're a a description of what it means to be in God's kingdom. See, because the nutritionists got it right. What did they say? They said, you are what you eat. All right, we've heard that. And, 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 you know, we think about it, if you think about how ridiculous that sounds, you know, okay, let's see, donut. I don't think I am a donut right now. But we get that idea that if you eat something, it's going to become what you are, and maybe you'll be wearing the donuts a little bit longer than you planned. But that goes for our spiritual as well. We are what we eat. If we are gorging ourselves on the world, we are going to look like the world because you are what you eat. And so what Christ is doing right at the beginning of his ministry, right at the beginning of the biggest sermon, the biggest collection of words that he utters in the book of Matthew is he lays out, this is how you need to eat. 
This is how you need to feast. This is the menu of the kingdom. And so as we look at this, we see this incredible, it, it, it's, it's almost paradoxical that Jesus is saying, you must eat on me. You must feast on righteousness in order to be a part of me. You must hunger and thirst. You must be ravenous for the righteousness that I can provide. And praise be to God that he says, I will satisfy. Not that I'll go, hey, good work. You're still hungry. No, I will satisfy. So spiritual health for us starts with having a correct hunger. So this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Matthew 5, 6 through 9. And we're going we're gonna to really start with six as the kind of the key peak of the Beatitudes. And this is my summary statement for it. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, which only comes from the Lord, he fills us and produces in us fruit matching Christ's character. So when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, not righteousness as the world says it is, but righteousness that comes only from the Lord, he fills us. He satisfies us, and that satisfying of us produces character that makes us look like our older brother, our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as, as that's still up there, I'll let some of you write that down. Some of you are uh, hurriedly trying to get that down. Just as a review, remember, we're in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are, are a, a word that comes from the Latin, which means blessed. These are the blessing statements. And Christ is laying these out, not to say, this is how you earn blessing, but this is what you're doing, therefore you're blessed. It's a, it's a putting the gospel in the right perspective. It's not earning blessing, but it's doing what comes because you are saved by the gospel and you are blessed. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this beatitude follows logically from the previous ones. It is a statement to which all others lead. It is the capstone. It is the top. It's the most important statement. Verse 6, as we get into this, this idea of hunger and thirsting for righteousness, this is the key statement. It's positive territory. So the first three Beatitudes, if you remember from, the last, from last week, we're going to hit them again this week because they all tie together. But they are blessed who are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek. All of these together combine to show what we're lacking. It shows that we can't do it on our own. We cannot earn our salvation. And it takes us to this place where now we hit the point, which is all of these things have led us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. My righteousness is not enough because I have none. And even if I had a kernel of righteousness, it's nowhere near enough. And so we get to this key verse, this, this peak. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so, for they shall be satisfied. So the first three were the need, and now we're at the solution. The solution is to hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. There's hope here. Notice it doesn't say, you must be righteous so that God will satisfy you. No, it says, you must hunger and thirst, and then he satisfies you. Because remember, we're spiritually bankrupt. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot bring ourselves to a place to clean ourselves up enough to earn anything from God. We are that wretched. This hunger and thirst implies desperation. 
They're, you know, America, we have been blessed that they're, we don't have a people that are dying of hunger and thirst. There still are people that go without food, and we know about that. We've heard stories. But compared to Jesus' time where there was no Walmart grocery store, there was no Safeway, there were not mini-marts here and there that probably give us food we don't need, but we go to those and we can get food. They didn't have that in Jesus' time. So hunger and thirsting, this was something they felt. And just think about how, how much passion you have to have for that next meal when you're starving. You will do anything to get that meal. That's the passion that is here for us. Jesus is saying you should hunger and thirst like a ravenous person. We all know what it's like to go without a little bit of food. And usually we wait a couple hours and we're like, I'm starving. We use that word incorrectly, but we get the idea of those hunger pains. They only get worse when we don't get fed. And that's the picture here. We are to be ravenously pursuing, passionately pursuing righteousness. So what does this word righteousness mean? Well, this word righteousness has lots of different definitions. It's defined as goodness, justice, holiness, right living is another way this is defined. But right here, what I think Jesus is doing is he's saying the righteousness comes from God. Because notice, it's he that satisfies us. He's the one that provides the righteousness. And so there's two parts here. And these two parts, you'll see, will come back up over and over again as we go through today. And it's two big theological words. One word is justification, and the other word is sanctification. These are the two words that we're going to camp on, and I'll give you a a definition now, and we'll keep coming back to it, so hopefully we get it when we're done. Justification means to be made right in God's eyes, so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect sacrifice and not our imperfect, wretched sin. And that's, that's instantaneous. That's a positional thing, is that God looks at us and says, I see you in this position, even though you're not because of Christ. Sanctification is what happens from the moment we're justified until we're glorified, till we go back to be with Christ in heaven. And that's the progression of getting more and more like Jesus as we go. And these two are absolutely crucial to being a Christian. Because if you're justified, you will be sanctified. You can't be sanctified until you're justified. They go together. And so as believers, we want to continue to grow until we step into paradise and perfect, are perfected. So what does this look like? What does this righteousness look like? Well, I see three things about the righteousness here that we need to grasp. The first one is that we are to desire to be free of sin. Righteousness means to desire to be free of sin. Why? Because it separates us from God. We want to be right with God. And we are positionally, but we want to continue to get rid of sin with our sanctification so that we can not have that separation from God. Because sin is a wedge that divides us from God. So the first thing of someone who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness is we desire to be free from sin. The second thing we have is we, want to be, we desire to be free from the power of sin. Okay, it's, it's one thing that we are sinning, but then there's that power that exudes on us, and it just is so enticing that that power is out of control. And so we want to be free from the power of sin. We want sin to have no power over us. And the third one, and this is the most difficult one, we want to be free from the desire to sin. Free from the desire to sin. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, Some of us really like our sin. Yeah, we feel guilty about it, but 
we return right back to it. And so we ultimately, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, this righteousness, this sanctification that we're pursuing, that Christ says he will satisfy, is to be to the point where we don't even desire to want sin. We don't even want that to be a thing. It becomes repulsive to us. So positively, these three statements, this person that longs and desires to be righteous is a man or woman who has the supreme desire to be like Christ. Because remember, the Beatitudes are Jesus. They're all about Jesus. Turn them all into positive statements. I am poor in spirit. Who's that? Jesus. I am mourn. He says he's a man of mourning. That's Jesus. I am meek. Jesus. Gentle. I am hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Absolutely. This, every single one of these is Jesus. And so when we, when we, we get these, we look more like Jesus. But one thing we, we get tempted with is we get tempted to put the fruit of our relationship with Jesus ahead of the root. And what I mean by that is we desire, sometimes we hunger and thirst for happiness. We hunger and thirst for the blessing. We hunger and thirst for the experience of feeling God's blessing instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. See, we are to pursue righteousness. Sorry, Thomas Jefferson, you got it wrong. It's not the pursuit of happiness That is what we should be going for. It should be the pursuit of righteousness. And when we pursue righteousness, happiness and blessing come. And so we're to pursue God for who he is, not for his gifts. And see, just like hunger is vital for us, God made us hungry so that we know time to eat. Because I think, you know, what does Psalm 23 say? We're all like sheep. I think sheep aren't smart enough. We're not smart enough. God gave us hunger for us to go, oh yeah, that's right, I need to eat. Oh, yeah, I need to drink. I tell my, my players, if you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated because you need to be drinking so that you're not thirsty. And that way your body's ready to play. Same thing with us. We are to hunger and thirst. If we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, our souls shrivel up. We must continue to hunger and thirst. And is it any wonder if we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but we're hungering and thirsting for what the world offers? Is it any wonder that the church in America is so unhealthy? It's unhealthy because it's desiring the same thing the world. The world is dying from what they're drinking and eating, and we're going, you know, that looks pretty good. I'm going to go with that instead of going with what the Lord tells us here. But here's the good news. You will be satisfied. Do you see how this passage soars at the end? It's not, hey, hunger and thirst for righteousness and your life on earth is going to suck, but someday when you're in heaven it's going to be great. That's not what he says. He says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you shall be satisfied. You may be satisfied. Someday you will. No, you will be satisfied. See, you are made for something greater than this world, and the fact that you cannot have it filled by anything in this world proves there's a God in heaven who's made you for him, and we will continue, continue to be unhappy until we find our happiness in him by being righteous, by, by, by pursuing righteousness that he gives us. So now we move on into this satisfaction. So we've got the peak. He says, this is where you should be. I will satisfy you. What are the results? What are the things that come from this incredible truth? Well, first off, we're going to see that the first three Beatitudes correspond to the next three. Those who are merciful are those who are poor in spirit. Those who are pure in heart are those who have mourned and asked for forgiveness. 
Those who are peacemakers have been meek. And so you're going to see this flow. He shows us where we're lacking. Then he says, pursue righteousness. And then he takes our lacking and makes them into these beautiful pictures of merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. So let's walk through that together. So remember, the first beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit. So theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means I cannot do anything. I am I'm impoverished. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And because of that, it leads me to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which leads to verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There are countless examples in the world of unmercifulness, people who are not merciful. One of the stories I read were twin brothers. They grew up together. They worked for their dad. They were identical twins. They dressed alike. They talked alike. They loved each other. Dad passed away and left his business for the twin brothers, and they worked together like dogs, and this business was going until one day. One day, one of the brothers was up in the front helping a customer. The other brother was in the back helping a customer. The customer gave him a dollar to put in the cash register, and he didn't get around to putting it in, so he set it on the cash register, went to help another customer. As the day went on, he went back there. The dollar was gone. So he asked the other brother, he said, where did the dollar go that was there? And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, that's weird. The only person that was back there was my brother. Hmm. A little bit later... He goes in, and the other brother looks a little more suspicious, and it becomes a point of contention, like a little rock in the shoe that feels like a boulder. And this, this contention happened, and these brothers began not speaking to each other. And the brothers started hating each other, so much, in fact, that they decided, through a proxy, through somebody else, to divide Dad's shop right down the middle with a new wall, and they ran competing businesses against each other, hoping to put the other one out of business for 20 years over one dollar. Twenty years later, a man shows up, knocks on the door, and says, hey, I need to talk to the manager. And the first brother goes, that's me. He goes, 20 years ago, I was down on my luck. And 20 years ago, I was in drugs, and I was in, in alcohol, and I was doing all sorts of things I shouldn't, and I was trying to find any way to make money I could. And I walked by your store, and the back door was cracked open, and I saw a dollar sitting there, and I stole it. He says, I would like to give you the dollar back, and I would like to pay and make up for this. The brother began crying, and he said, come with me. And he grabbed the man by the arm and went to the store that was literally attached to the store he was in and explained it to the brother. And the man had not even gotten the words out of his mouth before the two brothers, sobbing, grown, 70-year-old men, hugging each other and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 20 years wasted over a dollar. See, mercy is something that's got two components to it. One is caring for those who are in need. We call that compassion. The other is forgiveness. Forgiveness, even if the person doesn't ask for it, but for your own sake, forgiving them. These two brothers who are the most alike people on the planet couldn't be bothered to forgive the other. One's being condemned of stealing a dollar. The other one is being mad that he's being condemned of spending a dollar, so they split. No mercy so for us, we must understand that this mercy here is not just a feeling of compassion. I shouldn't, you know, someone's in need and I shouldn't go, oh, that's terrible. I felt compassion. And then move on. Compassion, the mercy is compassion with action. It's doing something about it. 
Same thing goes for forgiveness. It's not just, well, I probably should forgive that person. It's forgiving them and treating them as such. It doesn't mean you got to be best friends, but you do need to forgive them and let the bitterness go. One person said, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And forgiveness releases you from that. See, we, we misunderstand that these beatitudes they're, they're, they're not for us to try and act like Christians. Instead, we are to go, if we are in Christ, we are Christians. These are the actions that should flow out of us naturally. And if they don't, it's a call for us to get more in Christ so that we can act more like Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we are not meant to control our Christianity, but our Christianity is meant to control us. The position, rather, is that my Christianity controls me. I am so dominated by the truth because I have been made a Christian by the Holy Spirit's power. That's how we're supposed to be. It's supposed to come out of us. And this mercy is the first of the three that we're going to talk about. So what is the difference between grace and mercy? These are two words that get thrown around quite a bit. Actually, many times people use them interchangeably. The word grace means getting something you don't deserve. It's, I, I, des- I don't deserve anything and I get something. So that's salvation. Or salvation we don't deserve, but we get it because the Lord is love. It's undeserved love. Mercy sounds almost the same, but it's not getting what we deserve. So what I have earned is I have earned the, the damnation that my sins have so, my, my, so many sins, I earned a Dalmatian, not Dalmatians, that's different, damnation, well, Dalmatian, damnation, that's mercy, it's forgiveness. Mercy is love reaching out to the helpless, that's the compassion, Mercy is grace in action. We can see the compassion and the forgiveness all together. And we can't talk about mercy without talking about the cross. Because when we look on that cross, he is the one that is giving us salvation and taking what we deserve. When you're at the foot of the cross and you're looking up at Christ, you can't look around at the people around you and go, well, this person did this to me. Because you're looking at Jesus and going, I did that to the Son of God. This is that poverty of spirit. I have nothing to bring. I am bankrupt. So this is the picture we see here of mercy. Now, anytime we take a verse of the Bible out of its context, it's easy to misuse. This verse has been misused for quite a bit. And people will say, well, if I'm merciful, then I can go to heaven and have mercy. If I'm not merciful, then I'm not going to heaven. That's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying we could earn this mercy from God by being merciful. Instead, it says in the Bible, it says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not by the mercy you've extended. It's by the grace of God that you are saved. So what does it mean to be blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy? Well, it doesn't mean I can ever forgive enough to be forgiven by God. Because we will never meet his standard. But being merciful is a natural result of the mercy I've been extended. See, mercy comes from mercy. When I feel the mercy of God, when I'm looking up at the cross and I go, he did that for me, for me. How could I not do that for everyone else that he did that for? You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling of mercy in your heart. That you owe everything to God's divine mercy. See, there's a, there's a flow here. 
I am poor in spirit, nothing I bring. I mourn for my sins, to the cross I cling. I am meek, I have experienced my true self, I can do nothing. Therefore, I hunger and thirst for the righteousness that I thought I could do on my own, but I can't do it. I need Christ. And he steps in and he goes, I will satisfy. I will give it to you. If that's happened, your default setting has switched and compassion and forgiveness, mercy is what you are known for. That's what this passage is saying. God's grace, you can be compassionate. Because of it, you can forgive. Once you've tasted that righteousness, you can't help but share it with everyone around you. So that's the first one we see. Next, we move on to verse 8. But before we do, let's review verse 4. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Another encouraging verse. You will be comforted in your mourning. And as we talked last week, this mourning is either for your sin or the effects of sin on the world. It's all there. It's about sin. But for us specifically, we sin we see that we, even though, even though God did all that, he's on the cross there, and I'm looking at him and I go, he did that for me. I'm over here being the traitor. I'm the Benedict Arnold. I'm working for the other side by sinning even more. I'm laying more onto my Christ every single time, and I mourn over that, and I go, God, how am I doing this again? I'm, a, I'm adding more sin to him. And that's the mourning that we have. And if we stop there, we're in big trouble because all we're doing is mourning. We haven't gone to the solution. We go to Christ, the great comforter. And he says, forgiven, forgiven. And that takes us into the pure in spirit, pure in heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can never exhaust this verse. It needs 50 or 60 sermons itself. And isn't that true? Pure in heart, we will see Jesus. We will see God. This is echoing throughout the Bible. Actually, pure in heart is all over the place, especially in the Old Testament. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Psalm 73, 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In the Old Testament, it uses the word upright and pure in heart synonymously. They use them all the way through. This is a category of people. See, it's not concerned with the externals, but it's the internals. Later on in Matthew, Jesus goes on to say, what comes out of a mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles the person. And so there's this picture here that Jesus is tying all of this together and saying, if you're pure in heart, you shall see God. So clearly heart here means not just the place that pumps the blood. What it means is it means the very personality, the essence of who you are, the fount out of everything, which everything comes out of. And pure in heart means to be clean. It means to be without blemish. It means without any impurities in there. So this group of people that is upright, this, this category of people that is there, it's not your pastor, it's not your, your, your tele-evangelist. It's not your, your, your named authors. It's each and every one of us. Because just like the kingdom is an already not yet, you are already pure in heart, though you still sin, but you're going to be completely pure in heart when you go to heaven. 
This is, the, this is the promise that God makes to us, is that he's going to come in and he's going to do a work on our hearts and purify our hearts. Spurgeon says, there's no way of seeing God until your heart is renewed by sovereign grace. It's not greatness of intellect, but purity of infec- affection that enables us to see God. You know, in Jesus' time, it was the people who had the outward expressions of being a good follower of God who got all the acclaim. You know, the Pharisees would have worded this, blessed are the outwardly clean, because they will see God. Instead, this is an inward purity. The pure in heart, this calls us to see Jesus is more concerned about our attitude towards God than our attitude towards others. And if we're honest, our hearts are the problem. If we could take all of the evil people and round them up and get rid of them, shoot them off into space and only leave the, the non-evil people here on earth, nobody would be here. A Russian writer once wrote, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. See, every single one of us have impure hearts apart from Christ. We have impure hearts apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts are mixed. James says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are to have those pure hearts. And then look at, the, look at the prize. We get to see God. Is there anything greater than seeing God? Is there anything better than seeing God? The more pure our hearts get, the more we get to see God, the more we get to understand him. See, when, when, we're, when, we're, when we become a believer, when we follow Christ, immediately God views us with a pure heart because of justification. But then he begins working on us through sanctification to make our hearts pure as we continue on on this path to going to being with him someday in heaven. And so it's that already, yes, God sees you with a pure heart. Not yet are you actually pure. And that's the picture that we have. And that's that hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We cannot do this apart from being born again. We cannot do this. The Sinful old man, sinful old woman cannot do this. It must be a redeemed new man, a redeemed new woman. Which leads us to the last beatitude for today. Again, reflecting on verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So we're spiritually bankrupt. We're mourning over our sins. This makes me go see myself truly, which is what meekness is. It's seeing myself as I actually am. And I go, I have nothing here. I have no rights to stand for. I am nothing. Which makes me into the perfect peacemaker because I'm not fighting for my rights. I am a fighting for peace. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. War is a constant thing in our world. There have been wars nonstop since the beginning of man. And that's just the big ones where people are killing each other. We've got wars going on between people in this room. We've got wars going on between people that we know who are outside of this room. And if we're honest, we've got a war going on against our Lord. When people try to say, well, just follow the golden rule, love others as you love yourself, and that'll make it all better. The problem is, is that you can't be a peacemaker if you don't do the first parts of the Beatitudes, if you don't follow the progression of recognizing you've got nothing, you must rely completely on him, and he is the one that will make the peace. See, as long as you don't deal with the root of a problem, the problem remains. 
Oh, we've got this well behind our house, and it you know, gives us poisonous water, but we filter it for a few days, and then we can drink it. Do we have a well that produces good water? No, it still produces poison. See, that's the way it is with the human heart. The human heart produces poison. We must replace the human heart. Now, with most of these beatitudes, we know people who are kind of quiet, so we'd say they're meek. We know people who are very peaceful, and many of us would go, well, that's a peacemaker. Or we'd say a policeman is a peacemaker. That's actually a term that's refused, used for them. That's not what this is talking about here. It's not talking about someone who has kind of a, a natural propensity to not stir up strife or someone who wants to go and help enforce the law. Instead, this is not an attitude. It's an occupation. It's, it's, a, it's a calling by God. We are called as believers to be peacemakers. So who is this peace to be with? Well, it helps us that in the Bible, they use the word shalom, especially in the Old Testament. They use the word shalom. And it's this idea of peace. And to this day, the Jewish people will say shalom to each other. It's a greeting saying peace. This idea of shalom has a lot to it. The first part of shalom is me with you. So if I have a problem with somebody else, there needs to be shalom between us. The second is you and you. Group of people, group of people have a problem. There needs to be peace between those people. And most importantly, the shalom in the Bible is peace between me and God. So which of these three is what he's talking about here? The answer is all of the above. It's every single one. I am to be someone to make peace with my fellow people that have a problem with me or me with them. I am to be one that steps in between people and helps make peace between people. And very important, most important, I must help people make peace with their God. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20. We've seen this before. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So there's the starting place. We've got to have that new heart. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, in, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there's that ambassador. We make things right with people and their God, and then we also help them make things right with each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. See, peacemaking is a divine work. It's something God does. We don't make the peace. We just are the ones willing to go and let God use us to make the peace. God is the author of peace. The devil's the troublemaker. God is the one who loves reconciliation. Devil's the one that loves strife and splitting. God is bent on making peace. Only one who not only does not make trouble, but goes out of his way to produce peace is what is talked about here. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does a peacemaker look like? Well, I got three things for you here. First of all, a peacemaker is honest. This individual is an honest individual. Meaning that if they have a problem, because remember, if I'm going to somebody that I am at strife with, it's not 100% their fault. Maybe 99.9%, but it, it, there's, there's something that I need to own. And many times, I have to own a bunch of stuff that I didn't think I needed to own. So there's honesty there. 
And there's honesty when you're talking to two individuals and you've got to help them be able to see their, their problem. So the first thing is honesty. Don't pretend. Realism and, and, and get through it and work through the healing. The second thing we must see, a characteristic of a peacemaker, is willing to, take, to risk pain, willing to risk people hurting you. When people are fighting and they're, they're going at it, whether it's physically or verbally, you step in there, there's going to be some blows that are going to be landed on you. And they may come from both people. You know, they may be hitting you and saying, let me hit that other guy. That's the, way, that's the way it works at times. And so you have to be willing to step in and allow yourself to be hurt to be able to make peace. That sounds like somebody. It sounds like what Christ did, didn't he? And then third, and this is the paradox of the bunch, a peacemaker's a fighter. Like, Wait, that doesn't make sense. We make trouble to make peace. We, we step in there and we wage peace. We step in and we go, this is not, I'm not giving you license to go say whatever you want, but you're going to step in there and you're going to fight for peace between these people. You're going to fight for peace between them and their God. I hate to think that there's, not a, there's, there's people out there that are on their way to hell and they don't have to step over our dead bodies on the way there. They don't have to step over us holding on their leg going, please don't go that way. Instead, we're, oh yeah, well, they're just different. They do their thing. We should be fighting, getting in their way and laying, don't do it, you're going the wrong way. Be humble, put your ego in your hand, full of love, step up and wage peace. Because ultimately, if just like with mercy, if we're filled with peace, we have our peace from God, we can then step out and wage that peace between others. I love it. It says not only that we're called sons of God, but we are sons of God. Colossians 1, 19 and through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what Jesus came for, was to reconcile. And we are his ambassadors. Ambassadors represent the country they're from and speak for the king, the president, the parliament. That's what we are to do. And so we are to do exactly what Christ has done. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers have a view of themselves that doesn't match with the old view. Instead, it's a new view. The peacemaker has one goal, and that's to glorify God amongst men. And I love this promise. Called sons of God. Don't get hung up on the ladies there, on the, on the words there, ladies. It's sons and daughters of God. It's people of God's lineage, people of God's family. Doesn't tell us how to become sons of God. It said, it says, this is what sons of God look like. See, we are adopted into the family. That's the justification. It's a legal document that says, I am now a part of God's family. And then the sanctification is me taking on the traits of my adopted father, much like an adopted child that is taken by a family. And yes, they look different. And early on, they act different. But as that child lives with that family 10, 15, 20 years, they take on the personality, the characteristics, and they begin acting and looking and being like their adopted family. That's what sanctification is for us. That's the process we're meant to be on. 
We're not to walk into heaven looking the same way we did on the day we asked Christ to come into our lives and save us. We are to look more like Jesus every single day. It says, called sons of God. That word called means owned. And that, our translation went with called because it sounds a little bit better. But what God is saying is, these are my kids. They are mine. I've adopted them. They are mine. He is the God of peace. And we are to resemble our Father. There's to be a fatherly resemblance. The logic here is easy to follow. God's a God of peace. He made peace with us, brought us into his family. Therefore, we are at peace with the ultimate problem we had. So we will make peace with everybody else we come into contact with. Why? Because there's a family resemblance. This peacemaking is evangelistic at its core. It's to tell others about the peace that we have, we have through Christ. So, returning back to our key verse, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So does this menu appeal to you? Does it change what you're hungry for? You walked in, were you hungry for just the plain old hamburger? Or now are you hungry for something new? If you're not hungry, if, if this menu has not changed you, maybe it's because you don't know the Lord yet. You've not realized how helpless you are, how, how your sin is accruing and there is no go-between between you and the wrath of God. You don't see Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as for you then these Beatitudes are not encouraging. They're discouraging. They're confronting you with the fact that you can't do it. But here's the good news. You're here right now. You're still breathing. You're still here at this moment. And you can fix that because all you do is you repent and you throw yourself at the Lord's feet and say, I can't do this. I need you. I need you. And you become justified. You become a member of God's family. Now for many of you, Christ has already adopted you into the family. So my question now is, is what do you look like? Do you still look like the person who asked Christ into their heart? To, who, who, who finally surrendered to the Holy Spirit? maybe with some new habits of going to church, maybe reading the Bible. But are you looking more like Christ today than you did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? If you have, if you have done, if you have looked different, praise be to God. Stop and think and be encouraged. Even a small change is better than no change. But then take it back to him and go, okay, Lord, I know I've only gone this far in 10 years. I need more of you. I need more sanctification. I need to look like you more. Do a work in me. Increase this in me. See, the Beatitudes are meant to assure us, if we're in Christ, that we belong to his kingdom. We're to look at them, and yeah, there's going to be some that we're like, I don't do that very well. And there's others, I do this really well. Praise be to God. This is meant to encourage us and assure us and go, I am a part of his kingdom. But it's also meant to be marching orders as well. Sanctification is the proof that God is in my life and he is working. That that justification actually happened. That I am on my way to heaven. 
But we are also not to leave it there. We're to take it out and show the world as ambassadors for this kingdom that we are assured that we are a part of because of the work he's doing in our life because of sanctification. So let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of church that doesn't hide what we have, but instead shows it to the world. Not because we're something special, but because the one who died for us is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so good that we can call you that, Lord. We've been adopted into your family. And Lord, you didn't just leave us as the black sheep of the family, the the odd bird out, but instead, you are making us look more like you. So I I just pray that you would continue to do that work, Lord. I, I need it so bad. We need it so bad. I pray that you would continue to sanctify us, to continue to purify us. Lord, we look forward to walking into eternity where we don't need any more sanctification because we'll be perfect like your son. But until that moment, help us not to settle for what this world offers. Help us not to settle for no growth, but want more and more of you. Lord, help us to show you off to the world by how we follow you. In your name, amen.